You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it's politically necessary as a way of changing the world and bringing about revolution. And also because I just can't help doing it because I'd go completely mad if I didn't. I'm Anna Smith-Spark. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. And this is episode 63. It's a grim dark world after all. Listeners, welcome back to World Building for Masochists, and we are thrilled today to have another guest on the program, Anna Smith-Spark. Welcome. Hi. Hi. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. It's um, really nice talking to people again, getting getting things going a bit. It's been a bit strange. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's the motto of 2020 and 2021. Things have been a bit strange. Well, we're thrilled to have you on. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? Okay, so I'm Anna Smith-Spark. I'm a, well, I write what I started describing as grimdark high epic fantasy, which does feel a bit like I'm just throwing everything in there, really. But um, (laughs) it's just my my fantasy is getting higher and higher as it goes along and often described as unbelievably grimdark, too grimdark for many people, absolutely nihilistic. Although I dispute that, I think it is full of hope in a bleak and strange way. Um, I'm the author of the Empires of Dust trilogy, which suggests it may be nihilistic and bleak indeed, <laughs> from Harper Voyager in the UK, <laughs> Harper, um, Orbit in the US, which is The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living and Dying, and The House of Sacrifice which have been described as masterworks of dark fantasy, have been compared to Le Guin and Moorcock, and have also been described as absolutely unreasonably and nihilistic, plus the woman has no idea how to use basic punctuation. So there we are. Um, <laughs> I've also written quite a few short stories set in that world for uh, Grimdark magazine, Three Crows magazine, and um, Grimoke Press. What else do I say about myself? Oh, I have a degree in classics, which I've noticed someone else actually said at some point, that world, but the reason you do world building is to justify your classics degree. And yeah, there is a part to that. Yes, I have a degree in classics. In fact, I have a degree in classics, a master's in modern history, and a PhD in English literature that specialised in Victorian occultism. So I world build to make use of the fact that otherwise I'd have wasted coming on for 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's legit. I feel like we've had multiple classics majors or at least classics adjacent people as I am. I, I had an accidental almost classics minor. I don't know, there's something about like building a world and, and starting with the ancients that brains tend to, to glom there. A lot of Venn diagram overlap in those interests. Well, because, I mean, everyone since the Greek tragedians has basically been writing fan fiction based around the Iliad. And then people are like, sort of Norse myths are all just fanfics based around things like Beowulf and sagas and um, yeah I mean we're all just I kind of my kind of feeling often is it's like we run out of real history so we're like god we're gonna have to write our own I've read all the actual Greek myths and all the actual Norse myths many many times so I'll just go oh here's this thing called the wheel of time which is nearly as big and as complex and as detailed (laughs) this is is why we do this is why we do fantasy it's just because we've run out of there are only so many versions of the Iliad you can read before you want to read something else. So I, I get the impression, Anna, that, that you enjoy <laughs> world building, as we do. Um, 
what are some of the things that that just that you enjoy about the process of world building? See, I don't world build before I start writing. I world build as it happens. The world kind of just started existing completely organically for me. I didn't create a world to write the Empire of Dust series in. I just started writing, and this whole world just appeared. And I was like, I re- I was like exploring it. I was discovering it as I went along. And I mean, for me, that's just the me. What I love about fantasy and why I love fantasy so much, why I love re- reading and writing it, is that sense of being able to explore a different place, being able to go into another world. So you're create so creating a world that is not this world is different, that is strange, that is magical, that is. Actually, I gave some school children some advice to sort of turn it up to 11, which they didn't actually understand. I had to explain the whole metaphor to them. Um, but, you know, it's like taking... <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> trying, to, trying to explain spinal tap to a load of eight-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> just in there, like, wait, you're supposed to be pretty bright. But, um, but it's like, yeah, it's like taking... It's like going on holiday and just ramping it all up. And that... I kind of I do read fantasy partly the way I read travel supplements and things just that sense of like oh I want to be there and I can't go there so the closest thing is to write about it or to read about it and that I would read I'm I'm the kind of person who reads all I get so excited when I discover the notes at the back or the kind of when people um so people like Ericsson or Scott Baker give you the big stuff at the back with all the glossaries and the kind of and you get all the maps and everything i love all that stuff i would read people joke people complain about oh you know there's all this expo dumping world building dumping stuff i love that stuff i'd I'd read footnotes i'd read whole encyclopedias that were just about a fancy world (laughs) because i just love i love all the genealogies i love all the geography i love all the random all this stuff that's never quite explained backstory and all the kind of past history and all of that because it's like it is the nearest thing to being in a completely different place. It is the nearest thing to being on holiday in a completely alien world and going on and exploring that world and its museums and its art galleries and its food and its culture and its language. Yeah, it's, it does feel sometimes like, okay, I've studied quite a lot of Greek history and Roman history, and now there are all these other worlds, these histories I want to discover as well and study their languages and their mythologies. And that's that's why I love world building. It's just, it's just being in different places escaping this world for something better and well not better this big grim dog but yeah better because it's, it's, it's more amazing it's turned up to 11 yeah <laughs> well it's like there's there's you know it's you know, it's kids so it's like they when they're really little and they discover something that is totally normal to us like oh my gosh mom it's a caterpillar and it's just the most exciting thing in the world and it's like as an adult i don't have many of those moments in the real world, unless I really like get myself into that feeling of like, I'm going to experience this with wonder, but like fantasy, like you get to discover things that, you know, and be surprised like you were when you were a kid and found a frog or whatever, yeah, it's you know, just that that's I'm so when I said in the introduction about fantasy being world building being politically necessary, I do mean that kind of it's giving you back that sense that the world is important in its own terms and in terms that can't be in terms that can't be quantified and monified. I've grown up going most of my holidays to parts of Britain. I've studied a lot of British history. I'm actually, at the moment, I spent the last two days in bed with coronavirus rereading a great big book of um, English folklore. And it's all about the kind of weird tales and some of which are just kind of really stupid little jokey stories and some of which are obviously very elaborate Victorian ghost stories and some of which are kind of really weird folk traditions of all different bits of England. 
and I know quite a lot of those places. I always get more excited when I read the chapters about the places, I've, the counties of England I've been to. And I kind of still believe that stuff. So I'll go somewhere, even just a local, like just the local trees in the park. And I can look at those trees and I can see all the, you know, all the mythology and folklore and all the stuff in fantasy that's in, you know, anything about trees, go and see them and think about ants and go and think about the, the silver tree coming to blossom at the end of the Lord of the Rings and think about the book, The Silver on the Tree, by um that's part of the, that's the last of the dark of the rising sequence and go and think about like yggdrasil and think about you know think just tree magic and, and um dryads and all that kind of stuff and that's what i see when i look at that tree and someone else might look at that tree and they might just say oh there's a bit of boring wasteland with some trees on it hey we could turn it into flats <laughs> you know it's the totally opposite of that kind of businessman's you know you're seeing the world in terms of that really horrible, it's Mackenzie's quote, you know, the famous, the consultancy firm, it's this terrifying quote that they have, that the British government has lived by since at least the 1990s. Anything of value can be measured and anything only, anything that has, that can be measured has value. So it's all about, it's where all the kind of everything having, you know, everything having kind of metrics comes from, that notion of being able to demonstrate this thing has value because I can point to these metrics that it added this mouse X onto GDP or, you know, it reduced child offending by X percentage. And that way that, you know, that's how you value anything. And fantasy world building for me is completely the opposite of that because it is making a world that is magical and strange and powerful and weird. Where a cave has a dragon, might have a dragon in it, or a, I mean that lovely, lovely scene in the film of the Lord of the Rings where they're camped by what are, in fact, of course, Bilbo's trolls from the Hobbits. But you never, they don't actually say that in the film. Of course, it's only if you've read the book that you realise what that is. And that kind of weird, that giving that world, I mean, that sense of a world being strange and wonderful and magical and powerful, that's just absolutely lacking in kind of absolute late modern capitalism where it is only about what's the yield yes, li listeners if you could have seen all of our faces at that <laughs> quote we were all like we all recoiled from the like computer as though nausea like, overcame yeah. like, oh how terrible it, it puts me in mind of one of my favorite quotes from from the musical man of la mancha which i'm pretty sure is paraphrased from actual cervantes writing which is you know most terrible of all to see the world as it is and not as it could be I feel yeah. like that's like, I feel like Fantasy of the Writers, we live in that area. Like, what could this be? What could be the explanation for this little grove or, or this hole in the hedge? What do we, you know, where does our imagination fill in the gaps of reality? Yeah, it is that creating, it is making the world, it is that sort of, it is the re-enchantment of the world. There's that. So um, Max Weber talks about the disenchantment of the world, that sort of capitalism and pro Protestant capitalism creates a kind of non-enchantment of the world where things are about business and about in monetary terms and in measurement terms and scientific terms, which is obviously kind of hugely important for enlightenment and scientific progress, but also creates a world in which things that are of value, think nothing has value beyond how it can be quantified and measured and packaged up and sold. And fantasy makes comes back to that re-enchanted world where things are so much, uh, there is more. It's a world in which 
I think, yeah, there's limitless possibilities. There's a sense, there's that kind of sense of wonder and the world of being, which obviously is really important in environmental terms, is important in social justice terms, but the world is more than just quantifiable <laughs> little parcels of value. And that's that's why world building is important. That is why, because it's a yes. massive political statement <laughs> that kind of <laughs> the world means more than just, just business terms. Such a human thing too. I think it's interesting because you can put it on like a global scale. And I remember um, an essay where C.S. Lewis talks about it on a personal scale. That like as children, we believe in more and we believe that the world is enchanted and that there's possibility. And like we kind of get this like beaten out of us by all the things on the global scale <laughs> but then like as adults we can kind of choose to re-enter that like re-enchantment period and be like you know what maybe i was right as a kid and i was wrong about the mechanics because we're not goblins living in my basement or fairies in my forest though maybe there are i don't know but there is actually a form of magic here and i as an adult can like believe in that and and that that's something like writing fantasy and reading fantasy get to engage that a bit like work those muscles yeah I mean I've never I kind of in some ways I've never stopped believing that stuff in some ways I kind of I'm kind of always feared if I just held for one moment longer when I'm in a magical place then I'd see the magic I mean there's all these kind of traditions about you know things like the hollow hills so I've been in lots of places in the British countryside which are sort of linked with the hollow hills and the entrances to the under other world and things and I really, part of me really is like, well, you know, if I just held that a moment longer, I'd have seen it. Or, you know, that thing where you with the mirror, you know, the thing with the mirror where you stand and look into the mirror and you're like, and you put your hand on the mirror and it's like, I can go through here. <laughs> Maybe this time the portal will open and I will jump through. <laughs> yeah, if I just, yes, yes, if I just waited yes, I, one moment longer, it would have done. <laughs> I keep hitting the back of my cupboard in my closets to see if maybe this time. Someday that secret door will open. Yeah, and that's, I kind of think that Blair right. Yeah, and yes. that's until then, I write it. But one day, one day it will all be real. Fantasy writers never actually die. We just get absorbed into <laughs> parallel universes. That's, that's true. Rather than diminishing no, and going into the West, to, we, to honest, uh, we some, just wander some off. Some of our worlds I wouldn't want to fall into, um, <laughs> depending Good on the Good segue, time. Rowena. <laughs> and so thinking about grimdark, you know, what's your working definition of that term? Because I feel like it's one that gets like debated and misapplied and, and like all taxonomical literary terms gets debated and misapplied. But what's your working definition of grimdark? So I think it's very much about cynicism and actually I think it's very much about political awareness I mean people have this sort of really awful horrible people have a very kind of stereotypically and I think totally incorrect I think pretty much anyone certainly anyone who writes in Grimdark seriously would say incorrect and certainly all the people I know kind of people like Adrian Collins the editor of Grimdark magazine who are kind of heavily kind of fans of the genre would would say is totally incorrect you know that notion that Grimdark is just a fantasy world in which there is huge amounts of extreme violence and rape and kind of it's what game of thrones became it's that the sort of um ramsey kind of or what else can we do that's really horrible hey well we've we've had rape several times so hey let's just bring in some animal rape as well because i mean what can we do to shock people further and that oh god that is just so horrible it's just so pointless and stupid and just ooh, just really revolts me but because for me, what Grimdark is, is 
it's writing fantasy with that kind of cynical awareness that actually often the world you know the world isn't good lots of things that are done with often with very very good intentions go horribly badly wrong that sometimes you know historically very often things that people have had to make the most horrible choices that there's no good outcome or that there's a good outcome but that can only be achieved through something horrible happening to someone else that things have consequences and actually that you know the whole it's interrogating the whole notion of the hero a lot of fantasy very uncritically had in the late in the later, less second half of the twentieth century, that very kind of uncritical, and particularly I think sort of you know the sort of fancy that evolved in the nineteen eighties, which is very much just these kind of mindless heroes. I often use the term white knights, and I do mean that very literally, as in you know white knights <laughs> who just go around striding around, beheading various things which are just evil for no real reason, apart from they are evil, and that's the whole story. And it's that terrifying kind of grimdark is about pointing out that there are no heroes or that there are heroes but they're often flawed and often have ulterior motives it's about trying to interrogate things point out that that very simple someone will lead us to greatness and these people are bad and we are good sort of discourse is intensely incredibly incredibly problematic and that trying to question that and really try and understand what the motivate what motivates someone's leader someone who's taking a leadership role and why we're doing what we're doing and why the other other side are doing what they're doing and what the consequences of the act choices we've made even if they were choices that we made because we had to or the choices we made that were for the best that possibly there are unintended consequences or inevitable consequences that were negative for others it's that i mean it is nihilistic in some ways because it is saying that sort of it's a much harder path. It's saying that there's a, it's, much, it's all much more difficult than that it's just this person will lead us to salvation. But that's necessary. It's incredibly politically necessary. Peter, I think Grimdark is incredibly understood as a kind of ultra-violent, very kind of creepy, incel male fantasy about extreme violence and extreme sexual violence. And it's really not. It's actually an unpicking of what of the kind of problem is an unpicking of toxic toxic masculinity and of essentially the kind of quasi-fascistic notion of lead white male leadership in a lot of fancy novels it's what grimdark is as far as i'm concerned i think most of the people i know who write it would say the same thing it's it's a it's very politically driven but with a but from a cynicistic from very sort of cynicism and nihilism rather than something like a more kind of hope punk kind of writing which is much more about trying to present alternatives i kind of see i kind of sometimes say i'm leveling the ground for other people to create new world to create kind of new political systems and new worlds in that don't have those problems so that yeah that that so that's grimmed up for me anyway i was gonna say we met when we were put together on a hope punk versus grimdark panel yes. because of course con runners like to put people on up there and make them fight and i i mean i walked out of there like you turned me around on grimdark and convinced me because <laughs> i mean because you spoke so passionately about it in, in those terms and it was really and that i mean that was just an incredible experience for me which is why when i'm like we're going to talk about grimdark i'm like i know exactly who we need on this show to talk about grimdark <laughs> about say so um our scott baker's second apocalypse series which is massively misunderstood because it is so it is an incredibly it's the world it's set in is a kind of it's, it's sort of classically influenced world it is a profound there are passages it is a profoundly misogynistic world it is a profoundly homophobic world the characters in it 
are ex- are incredibly explicitly misogynistic and homophobic. There are re- some really really troubling passages in it. There are very the well, there are very very few female characters. The female characters that are in it, one is a prostitute, one is a sex slave, and that's the point. The point is the whole point of the books is this kind of utterly sterile world. The point is a man writing a male world that is just dead and sterile. It's a world in which because men can only see women as objects because they can't really love, they can only see women as objects. The men are deeply unhappy because they because it's an intensely homophobic world. Any kind of expression of sexual identity or gender identity beyond straight masculinity is suppressed. It's a horrible, horrible world in which the people are living pretty horrible lives. And that's the point. It's almost it is a kind of you know, there is there's a kind of quite astonishing scene where a character who is a he's a he's a He's the heir to a vast empire. He's a great warrior. He's, you know, he's every kind of, he is the kind of fantasy ideal character in some way. You know, he's a lot of, he's a sort of, he is a kind of adolescent male fantasy of what the kind of, you know, absolute uber maleness. He's this young crown prince, uber warrior, and he snaps his fingers and this incredibly beautiful slave woman who's been chosen for her astonishing beauty and her incredible figure and she's been trained in all these amazing sexual arts is brought in and of course he can't find any interest in her at all because he's never actually experienced love he's never experienced affection he's never experienced sex as something that you do as a joyful thing between two people who care about each other or as something you do to someone because you want them to feel pleasure and he's just and that and then he just sort of she's taken away again and he goes back to lounging around in his coach bored out of his mind and it's that <laughs> that horrible sterility of his existence and of what he is and of what this world has made him that no one in that world is really capable of feeling love is capable of feeling domestic happiness with family is capable of feeling anything other than fulfillment through war and so yeah so i mean you could read astonishing is that anyone could read it and think oh yeah gosh these guys are great <laughs> apparently some people do <laughs> very very few we can we can take a guess as to the demographic yeah. of who is but it's, reading you know, it that it's way <laughs> very clearly just kind of and actually the books became less and less successful as I think it became clearer what was going on in them, that from the original kind of, gosh, isn't this something to aspire to? It became increasingly clear, oh my God, these people's lives are just so awful. That for me is really is a really important part of Grimdark, which I think the, the television series of Game of Thrones just really quickly lost, that actually in the early books of Song of Fire and Ice, there's this sense of the futility of it all. And I think that's part of the reason why Martin had a lot of his, he has those big twists where a character is killed off because, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I assume it's all right to talk about things like the twist in the Red Wedding now because if someone, if anyone listening to this does not know what the twist in the Red Wedding is, then um, you probably shouldn't I mean, listen to this like, <laughs> We're closing on 20 years. I think it's probably okay. You know what? It just was not a priority for you. Yeah. I think we can safely presume that they, if they don't know, they also probably don't care about it as like, oh no, you spoiled it. Yes. Yes. So, um, I mean, something, so, you know, things like the twists, the, so the twists in, of course, first of all, Ned Sharp's death, and then later, and then in the, the, the Red Wedding, they're those kind of, he's got them in there because it's that kind of, the sort of futility of life, the pointlessness of it all, you know. It is just one minute, there's sort of things seem to be going all right, then the next minute, it's just, it's just pointless and futile. And this notion that, oh, this guy is the hero is just totally un 
just sort of totally undercut by the way that Martin's playing around with those what's in fact often you know historically these things did happen and historically you do get these kind of really bizarre this guy was about to conquer expand his empire to conquer most of Europe but then unfortunately he got sick and died in two weeks and there we go (laughs) it's kind of um but that's that kind of you know the futility of it all the pointlessness of it all this kind of great glorious crusade that we're on that the north will rise again and we will be revenged and then oops and then it gets it just gets lost in later books because it just becomes that and certainly in the television series it just comes totally lost in that kind of oh god it's just schlock again we've just got to have got more big violent scenes where someone's horribly killed in front of us yeah i think that the, you're right that it shifts from in the earlier books and the earlier experience before you know before you were watching you know the, the tv series there's the sense of fate is truly random and something can happen at any point to completely upend everything. And it wasn't done for shock value. It's just done for this reminder of like, oh, and hmm, no, best laid plans of mice and men. Sorry, moving on now. Which you're right, and history is kind of full of that. Yes. (laughs) Those moments of, wow, what a promising young... Oh, no, sorry, measles. The thing I started thinking about was, as you were giving the description of like, you know, exactly the... um, Grimdark taking place in a sick world, a sterile world, a world where all of these key components of human life are missing or undervalued. I started thinking about Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and I think Shakespeare's Julius Caesar might be a grimdark story. It's all about this, like, rampant masculinity that has to prove itself. They have wives, but they don't listen to them. They don't appear emotionally connected to them. And sickness is this running theme throughout the whole play and then at the end they all take the the tragic option of killing themselves and it's like this is not a noble and heroic thing they're doing this is not like (laughs) this is not a model for for good manly behavior this is a problem and shakespeare is showing it as a problem but not everyone gets that when they read it they're like oh, we're supposed to like these guys who all just start, you know, offing themselves at the end of a battle. And it's like, no, you're not. No, that's not. That's not what you're supposed <laughs> liking, to take away. Liking and not liking was not the point here. What, <laughs> what are we seeing? What can we learn? Observations, anyone? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also my, the right, because I write, I didn't start writing Grimdark because I thought, gosh, I'm going to write start writing Grimdark. I started writing because, and I was writing a fantasy novel and it was very much just that, I get, that's the way I've always read all of these novels. So um, I just having this com- having a long conversation with someone about the book of the new sun, which I guess there's some debate whether it's fancy or science fiction. But from this, um, but let's call it let's call it fantasy for the point of view of this program. So I was talking about the and someone was saying, oh, yeah, but he's such a horrible character. I said, well, I just always read it as this is what a bloke would do if they <laughs> if they, <laughs> they had the opportunity. It's that kind of and similarly Thomas Covenant was saying someone was saying oh he's not very nice I was like well no but I mean what else would you do if you found yourself in what else it's just how I expect a man would behave in this situation or certainly a kind of straight male western European man would would act in that situation that kind of so I actually I always used to I always think of I got in terrible trouble for writing a blog ages ago where I said that I thought the Starks were the villains of Game of Thrones. It was like, what? You mean you think... Like, oh Rams my God, I want to read it. Or you think, and it was like, no, no, no. But I mean, so the first of all, there's Ned, who is so convinced that, you know, there's his honour and righteousness and his honour and things that he's actually prepared to end up being killed and endanger his entire family because he will not do one unscrupulous thing. It's like, great. Well, that 
that went well for your honour, didn't it? I mean, really honourable for you. If you look at, yeah. what happen- look at what ends up happening as children, you can't feel quite great. His honour was really preserved there, wasn't it? Like, a whole darn country, dude. Come on. <laughs> yes. It, it really is me doing this right thing is better than the peace. Yes, yes. And then, yeah, and then similarly with the sort of, with the whole thing, again, with the whole sort of, whether it's in the books with the whole, but, but I slept with this woman, so therefore honour degrees, so I must marry her. Or in the book, this kind of, but I love her, so I must marry her. Like, yeah, well, how many people died because of that? I mean, wouldn't it have been better just to say, well, sorry. Um, yeah, we had sex. Yeah, maybe I knocked you up. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, you know, God, like, here's some money. Just, like, go away. And now I'm going to marry this woman who I have no feelings for. But, and yeah, it's not particularly nice for her or for you. But on the other hand, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. But no, everyone's like, oh, but he's such a good man. He marries this woman. You know, he, oh, he's, he's true to his feelings. And, oh, he's true. He, oh, he, get, he sleeps with her, so he must marry her. But yeah, great. Great comfort to all the widows. I feel like if you ask the, the average, you know, peasant in the lands that are getting torn up by the war, they'd be like, um, fuck your feelings, Snowflake. Solve the problem. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. glad... Glad that you have that softness in you. Sure, great, awesome, wonderful. I need food and not to die. Could you fix that? You're kind of in charge of that. Yeah. It's, I love the like, interrogation of consequences that I feel like so often in, you know, especially fairy tales, kids' stories, the more surfacey examinations of story, like there are decisions that are like, oh, if you pick part that a little further, there are consequences for that down the line. You've destabilized the entire kingdom by marrying the random peasant girl with the tiny feet. And we had this contract and now that's, we aren't going to have salt for three years because, you know, like all these things that in the real world, it's muddy and it's complicated. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of reassuring to read fantasy characters who do the noble quote unquote thing. And like fall on their asses because of it, because it's like this reassuring, like, actually, no, our decisions are not that easy. Like, there's no such thing as a simple decision with simple consequences. Everything has, who knows what all it touches. And it's okay to be unsure or confused. Like the good place judge who's like, it shouldn't be hard. And then goes down to actually live amongst the muck and the people. And is like, oh my God, it's awful there. Earth is a mess, <laughs> they, y'all. They are not nice. <laughs> and I think actually what Grimdark also does that's equally really important is it always sort of it really interrogates the notion of someone being bad and villainous as well, that notion of someone being evil, that notion that someone is just born bad or is just somehow... I mean, because the, the thing I never understand in a lot of fantasy is that, I mean, like the Dark Friends in The Wheel of Time, for example, why would anyone do that? Why does anyone sign up for that? It's like clearly the most crap thing to be. You're worshipping this god where you're going to get, yes, you'll get lots of power, but at the same time, you know, you're worshipping this completely capricious god who might kill you at any moment. <laughs> you can you're, you can get eaten at any moment by some of his other, the other people, other than lot working for him. All you're going to get at the end of it is damnation when you die. But people, loads of people are apparently signing up for this because they're just bad. They're just, you know, you're just that kind of notion that the the bad guy is irredeemably bad or that kind of, you know, he's the dark lord, he's evil, he is just evil incarnate and his followers are evil. And of course it's, and it, God knows it would be nice to think that it was that simple. And God knows, you look at what's been happening in the world recently and you really desperately actually want to cling on to, okay, these people are just, what is wrong with them? 
without any kind of attempt to have some kind of human context for, well, let's try and look at why people might think this way. Let's try and look at what on earth might be driving some of these belief systems, or that people might be acting in these ways. That's the only way you can change anything. If I just tell you you're wrong and you just tell me I'm wrong, well, where are we ever going to go from there? And it's so difficult. I mean, when you get to the point, that, like the whole argument about face masks and things recently, where you're just like, how have we got to this point where this kind of level of just insanity is being spoken about wearing a bit of cloth over your mouth and nose to stop someone else getting ill? You are just like, okay, I just this is just evil. But there's... Unless you try and unpack and try and work out what on earth is going on here, then you're never going to get anywhere to kind of resolving anything or to, and to kind of finding any way of persuading people to stop having these beliefs. The only way to change things is trying to interrogate why people are doing these things or believing these things. And again, Grimdark kind of tries to make the point that maybe people actually think this is a good reason for this or maybe people are trying to find, not ex not condone but try and find ways of sort of, ex sort of explaining things the more complicated than just well there's this big super bad which doesn't really get you anywhere well and when you have a world that's like clearly imperfect which in a grimdark world you have built a world that you are not hiding the imperfections yeah. you're you're acknowledging the imperfections in the world itself that like there are pressures on people and motivations on people that can start to explain part of why they do what they do and it doesn't condone it or encourage it, but it does say like, well, when the environmental pressures look like this, people react in certain ways and it's not always, you know, noble or pretty or polite, but animals under pressure behave certain ways, plants under pressure behave certain ways, human unsuffered under pressure, turns out, behave certain ways too. Yeah. It's like yeah, the dark... The Dark Lord may be the Dark Lord, but what are the societal conditions that allowed a Dark Lord to be a thing? You know, like, yeah. what yeah. privileges right. of power does he have that we need to investigate? What are the failures in his kingdom's educational system that he was never introduced to a new idea? Like, I feel like that's the exploration that that Grimdark can kind of do sometimes. Is like, this yeah. is not a unique event. He was not just born to be the incarnate of all evil. There were conditions, and if it wasn't him, it might be somebody else, because these conditions still exist so even if we take out one evil dude that doesn't solve the problem yeah yeah and yeah and someone yeah. steve erickson writes about this really quite interestingly that kind of um i've just actually been rereading the malazan books and the um and the stuff that the kind of the early books i think it's stuff about the tennis gallery and the the kind of who are sort of these sort of a pe peasant peasant army who eat their vic who's a eat cannibalite eat sort of raw corpses and things and it is absolutely horrific but he's talking very honestly about how people in extreme poverty driven under extreme pressures you can see where that rage exploded and historically that rage has exploded in in that way right? and it's that kind of and they are led by someone who is evil and corrupting them but there's again this kind of stuff looking at why that might be and how how a, how a society can come to that point. And it's, it's just ramping up, sort of taking up to 11 things which historical things which have happened and pointing out, you know, this is, this is, this could be any one of us, which is horrifying, but something that, and Grimdark does sort of talk about, and Grim, for me, Grimdark, one of the things about Grimdark is it's pointing out this could be any one of us. Any one of us could be both the hero and the arch villain you know any one of us could be doing these terrible terrible acts and any one of us could also be 
the one resisting those terrible acts. It's not about the chosen one versus the arch is the dark lord. It's about people in absolutely extreme situations that Grimdark Fantasy is able to really take, you know, absolute kind of extremes of magical violence or of horror or of sort of society is just absolutely being destroyed and put real people in there and point out and make them hu- make them understand and make them kind of plausibly human that you can see how you and all people you know could take make those different choices. And I think that's why it is a really that's why it's important. It's not a pleasant read. I mean, the last year, I have to admit, I have been reading a lot more stuff that isn't good <laughs> because it's, it's, it's always nice. Fair. To Fair. Yeah. Fair. In fact, someone asked me recently, kind of, oh, it's a um friends of mine in sort of Australia who are just finally having to actually go through the whole big lockdown thing and apparently bits of Australia have been in lockdown for ages but other bits and people in other bits they haven't had to really deal with long-term lockdowns before and I was saying well if you are writing at the moment don't write Grimdark this is uh, this is actually an interview for Grimdark magazine it was like don't write Grimdark you know what right now is the time for writing big descriptions of elven forests with unicorns and gold dragons is that those, those are also good and a necessary part of a fantasy it's that and actually that's why I say I write high Grimdark fantasy I guess because I write loads of that stuff I love all that stuff I love that kind of you know, massively... Actually, I don't write much of that stuff in Empress of Dust, I have to admit, but I'm writing more of that stuff. And there are bits of it, little flashes of it in there, that kind of, you know, Lothlorien, just impossibly beautiful fairy tale landscapes and high fantasy and impossibly beautiful in a and positive and just kind of Arthurian kind of, you know, beautiful, noble stuff, because that that work, that can, that's, there within, that's there within human nature as well, that kind of aspiring to something really kind of higher and brighter and more wonderful and magical and that yeah so I think that can be there in Grimdark I certainly want it to be there in my own writing I love hearing by the way how many writers like the past year and a half I mean it's been a year and a half and how many of us are like reacting to it being like I'm writing this thing that I didn't give myself permission to write before or that just really is feeding me in some way it's just it's making me happy damn it so I'm writing it so I'm actually really looking forward to everything coming out in a couple years (laughs) all of that stuff percolates through and and it's like everyone's like 2020 bliss book comes yes, out and the, yeah and the create creating this vast landscapes when you're stuck in your own home and yeah yeah <laughs> where could i go yeah. if i could go anywhere <laughs> yeah. well i'll write it damn it <laughs> so one thing i was kind of curious about and we've touched on it quite a bit already but i was curious about is i mean grimdark has certain subgenre norms that a reader yeah. picks up a book that's got grimdark on it and they kind of expect certain things out of it and as you're developing the world within the writing like how how does an understanding of those norms like inform what you include with your world building or do you just kind of say like <laughs> fuck it i'm writing what i want and <laughs> and the norms will sort themselves out later oh uh, so yes yeah, so i don't really think about it so i'd actually finished the court, the first, what well, I'd finished the Court of Broken Knives and had in fact gone to an agent before I really discovered this notion of this genre, grimdark fiction. So I'd read a lot of what I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of the time. I was very unconnected on social media for a long time. I wasn't 
only got on stuff only got onto social media and things and really getting involved in the fancy community after I'd written the book because I didn't really I've been kind of basically I've been totally isolated from everything for a long time and not I've been in a really unhappy place not kind of realizing there was any kind of community out there so these kind of notion a lot of the notion of talking about fantasy or connecting with other people who are fans was actually really problematic for me because I had this real struggle with I kind of felt saw myself as a failed writer for a long time because I'd never managed to write anything I was too scared to write something I really kind of felt if I started I sort of felt if I started to write something as an adult I don't know people would laugh or something so I kind of and it got to the point where I actually found going to bookshops the fancy section of bookshops really quite difficult because there were all these books that people had apparently managed to write and I knew that was the I knew that was the genre I wanted to write in. It was all right going into kind of in sort of you know the classic section and reading a Jane Austen because it's no one can sort of sit down and think, well, I, I'd like to write a novel like as good as Jane Austen because that's kind of you know that somehow <laughs> it felt all right to be reading you know the, the great European masters because it's quite difficult to see yourself as one of their peers to kind of to go into the modern particularly fantasy because fantasy was always my genre it was felt like kind of it like all these people have managed it all these people have managed to write at least one book which has been published and yet if I started to type to even if I sat down and typed it was a dark and stormy night somehow the skies were open and magical hands were pointing and laughing at me and it felt so I did not have any engagement with the fantasy community at all because it felt kind of I'm not part of these people, they can achieve something and I will never achieve. Which is, anyway, what I'm supposed to be talking about is the point is that, yeah, so I did not, was not familiar with the term Grimdark, I was not familiar with conversations about any of this stuff, people talking about the genre at all. So I wrote The Cold Brack and I with no thought about it being within the genre or within kind of what he was doing it I didn't even think of it as a novel until I got quite far into it it was obviously something with fantasy I realized it involved fantasy when I wrote got halfway through what's now chapter two which was originally chapter one and the dragon turns up but the notion it was a kind of the notion it was the first part volume of a grim dark fantasy trilogy was just completely absent so I just wrote the way I respond to fantasy rather than putting in thinking oh I need these tropes I suppose there's always a risk people often sort of think oh if it's I'm going to keep the screamed out so I'm going to chuck in more unpleasantness I'm going to chuck in more violence and actually there's that horrible thing often where people do often think oh because it's grim dark it needs sexual violence which is just so totally untrue and actually so um, my friend Mike Fletcher who has often been dubbed the god of grim dark if you read his books there is no sexual violence in any of his books as far as I'm aware someone's going to come around and say ha ha you're wrong but I'm pretty certain there isn't he's never it's made clear, as it's made clear in my work, that there is a lot of sexual violence taking place. I mean, I'm writing military fantasy, big sieges, a city is ta- cities are sacked. We know what happens when cities are sacked. It's made absolutely explicit what happens when the cities are destroyed because... And I'd actually always assumed that everyone had read into the destruction of cities in most books most fancy novels or the kind of you know the aftermath of a battle in most fancy novels I'd assumed it was just people just weren't bothering to say so even things like in Tolkien in the battle in Helm's Deep I just assumed it was just not bothered to be stated what is going to happen if the if the orcs win what is going to happen to the women and children in Helm's Deep 
I assumed it was just not needed to be spoken rather than people like, ooh, but Grimdark makes out that, ooh, these bad things happen to the women and children <laughs> if, if the orcs win. Because like, it's just obviously there. And it's I just make that explicit. There, there's a lot of making the t- subtext into text that, and some people were like, no, we wanted you to keep that subtext. Let's, yes. let's, let's and, pretend it didn't happen if we don't acknowledge yes. it. And, <laughs> yes. 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 Well, it's one of those, like, if you'd read your history, you would know that. <laughs> yes. I mean, it always, actually, it's a very, um, I was thinking about his sort of books about, um, it was, it's Alexander the Great. There's a very interesting thing about all Victorian so the Victorians, most of the stuff we have about Alexander the Great comes from Victorian scholars. Most of the kind of modern tropes around Alexander the Great are from Victorian scholars who have this kind of bizarrely sort of white Victorian, upper class English, colonial imperialist, but with this kind of bizarrely, you don't know, quite, it's, it's difficult to describe that kind of late Victorian colonial mindset which somehow really does appear to be this kind of jolly you know sort of jolly on the playing or oh, playing by the things by sporting rules it's just not cricket old boy where somehow you can impose that kinds of bizarre blithering hugh grant englishness while doing what they're doing and apparently be completely unaware of it I'm now picturing a movie with Hugh Grant as Alexander the Great, like before the walls of a city, saying exactly those words. Terribly sorry you got disemboweled, old boy. Yes, yes. And that's the way, you know, that kind of, because that's somehow they're projecting things like, you know, the Indian uprising, every, the sort of the atrocities that happen in the British Empire. And they're somehow projecting all of this in some kind of, oh, it's just not a cricket, old boy, kind of, you know. You know. And it, they do seem to have, genuinely seem to be completely have this completely bizarre kind of double vision inability to see what what they're actually doing, which they project onto all this sort of romantic stuff about Alexander. This you know, oh, it's so terribly romantic, and but of course, sort of which seems which is there in a lot of kind of the fantasy that's written by the generations of British writers coming out of that in the first half of the 20th century, where it's this, it is that kind of weird innocence, where kind of, well, I'm sure the orcs would have been terribly nice to the people in Helm's Deep. I mean, they'd at least, they'd all killed them terribly cleanly at worst, you know, kind of, they'd probably have let them go, in effect, I mean, and this sort of absolute failure to kind of somehow to be able to put into words what is going on around them. These are the people who basically invent concentration camps during the Boer War, but they'll be like, oh, well, it's just terribly not sporting. And somehow there's that inner fantasy, that kind of, and Grimdark points that out, kind of. Yes, you can put, you can put things in nice little boxes yeah. in, in society and in your own head, but in reality, yeah. they're all there. Yes, Grim, yes Grimdark just, yeah, Grimdark calls a spade a spade, basically. Yes, yes. <laughs> which I, did, I mean, because yeah, because it really astonishes me that people hadn't kind of really, I guess that people don't see that in a lot of other fantasy novels, because I just kind of assume it's just, that I think so I assumed for a long time people's problem with Grimdark was it said it rather than that's that kind of it, it was sort of, I don't know, making, I sort of hadn't realised that people just didn't see it, didn't realise it, just it assumed it wasn't there. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're onto something because I, I had noticed um, 
my books deal with revolution and the protagonist in the first book is very opposed to the idea of a revolution because bad things happen when people fight and she's very aware of her position as you know a middling person in society as a woman and this is just the worst possible outcome for her is fighting in the streets because (laughs) this is what happens when people are fighting in the streets is people who are not even fighting get bludgeoned and killed and raped and it's like i had do i need to spell this out because of some you know early reads were like but why not because (laughs) she likes being not dead yes and and not being raped do i have to i don't i don't want to have to explain this but maybe i need to yeah because i love that about your book actually that 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 about that that sort of talking about moderation i mean it's really difficult because obviously it's really hard and it it comes across you saying well people shouldn't be allowed to protest and obviously you know what's happened in the last couple of years with people actually finally actually really protesting stuff and being protest and actually it being taken seriously you know it's on the news black lives matter and then in britain protests about violence against women were on the news almost constantly now one might say that's because there was nothing else on the news (laughs) for news to be reporting on (laughs) but and if there'd been a good political scandal rather than lockdown but um but you know there was that people protest was on television almost was on live news pretty much continually for most of the lace most of a lot of 2020 and in fact in britain there was simultaneously vigils and protests about female women's rights and about um and also um black lives matter process both being the television cameras were switched from one to the other at one point there was this amazing weekend but it's also is that awareness i was doing a i was the last podcast interview i did i was talking about you know people sort of saying like oh but people take it too far you know that's sort of Problem is when that kind of oh, it was some bizarre conversation about transformers actually. Oh god, it was yeah, it was this. We ended up debating the morality of the morality of the Autobots because they they go too far when they actually rise up and start. It's the usual. It's the classic, you know, the slaves going too far when they actually start damaging property because you know it's, it's fine for it to also be terribly kind of um, peaceful process is one thing, but God, when you go and break up someone's shop. That's all terribly, you know, when you actually sort of start smashing things up to protest, that's all totally on. And me and this other guy were like, oh, yeah, well, damage to property. I mean, kind of, come on, you know. Oh, no, someone's house has been broken into, you know. Oh. But, of course, I'm saying that from the point of view of someone with who's a homeowner with house insurance and with parents who have enough, you know, have a spare room and enough money to help me out. If someone, if my house was collateral damage in a violent protest, I've got insured constants insurance, buildings insurance, a mum and dad with two spare rooms and spare cash. You know, I'm not... <laughs> I could survive my house being smashed up. A lot of people couldn't survive their house being smashed up or their small business being smashed up because they'd be an life destitute. So, yeah, it is that kind of really difficult... Again, that kind of consequences. A wonderful revolution to bring about utopia if someone's business is being smashed up and that means they are left financially destitute well for them that's terrible and yeah what i loved about your book was it talked about that kind of moderation trying to people trying to actually reach out and speak to each other and pointing out that there are bad consequences even to people protesting because it's even to really important protests about that this society is not great and people are treated really badly in it and people are really poor and suffering actually there are consequences for people to things 
to violent protest. It's just, it's all so complicated, basically. And that's the horrible problem, <laughs> which is what Grimdark is. Being also. human is hard. Being human is really hard. <laughs> yes. It was hard. As we come up on the end of our hour, Anna, we like to invite our guests to give us a little bit of trivia for the world that we have been co-building live on the podcast over the past couple of years. Uh, it can be related to this episode. It can be not related to this episode. It can be absolutely anything that you want to gift unto us that we then have to figure out how to work into our world. So what would you like to bestow upon us? Oh, see, now this may be really predictable and it may be someone's done this already, but so at the moment I'm self out. My whole family is self-isolating and several other families we know are self-isolating and my poor daughter, wretchedly, she started self-isolating, I think, two days before her best friend stopped her to self-isolate. So I was suddenly thinking, and it all seems perfectly normal, of course, for us, all of this. So I was thinking about a world in which someone just just disappears for five days. for no, And there is no, everyone, no one even really notices. I mean, people, obviously, people do notice. In a similar way, people just kind of, someone might be in the middle of fighting the dragon. They might be in a sleep in an inn. They might be doing whatever. And they just disappear. And then they just come back. They appear again. They appear kind of picking up where they left off five days later. Not in the same place. They just kind of, so if our party's moved on somewhere else, they just reappear five days later. And everyone is like completely unfazed by that. Just like, oh, you're back. And then two days later, someone else does that as well. Because that it seems, it, I suddenly realise how that's just, just perfectly normal to us now. It's just perfectly normal that people just come and go. <laughs> and... I just love that because it's, it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like what happened? To, what happened to Jimmy? Oh, you know, the pop out. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there is actually. Um, I've been rereading Alan Garner's children's book. Uh, his um, uh, the weird stone of Bristol Garment and the the Moon of Gomra, and there is a character in that who basically does that. He um, he's kind of the Aragorn character. So you have some rather the sort of these very boastful dwarves you have these actually wonderfully ill-tempered selfish elves and the two children and the wizards and then you have this figure who is very much like aragorn he's a human figure but he lives in the magical world so he's a creature he's a character from the deep roots in irish mythology there's this wonderful scene where he hears this there's strange animal noise is heard and he's, he realizes it's a sign it's made clear that he understands what it means and later on he's injured and the children say, "Is he dead? Has he died?" He's told, "No, they haven't died, but he's got this in his. He's got this terrible curse, where he never lives to see. He he never see an action fulfilled. So he's this kind of Aragorn role. He's you know he's leading the he's leading the army. He's protecting the children. He's the great he's the great warrior in battle. But he if he dies before the battle's finished and goes back to the sort of fairy world, and then he'll come back again later on for another quest. But he's he's cur he's." curse that he'll never see the end of what it is that he's set on so he'll just sort of he just sort of goes and the characters that know who he is the elves elves and the dwarves you know the, the way the magic work just kind of know this is what happens he just goes he's never going to see the end because he just goes before it because that's his fate and yeah this no so it's just this notion of this character just kind of disappearing and he so he goes and like yeah that's what happens every time there's a big adventure and we're a couple of days off winning he just goes because he's never lived through to see the end of it which kind of fits in with the idea of people having to suddenly self-quarantine because it's and just people just disappearing for 10 days in this country and then coming back again 
and no one even bothers to ask why. It's just, well, they're not there at the moment, and they'll be back again soon. It almost it almost creates like a, a vague <laughs> sense of object impermanence in the people yeah. wherever yeah. this is happening. Like, oh, well, Sally disappeared, and I didn't really think about it for a few days, and then she reappeared and was like, oh, you're here again. That's good. Yeah, I yeah. can work you back in. It becomes the normalized thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is how it has now become. In, certainly in Britain at the moment, our rates are so high and so many people are self-isolating. It really is like that. It's just this kind of... Yeah. <laughs> At least your people are self-isolating. <laughs> uh, we've uh, we've gotten a bit lax about that. Oh no, we're. Um... They don't even tell yeah, us no, sometimes quite... when there's somebody, you know, close contact. Anyway, <laughs> it's quite strict. It is being treated. It is taken taken pretty seriously here. But yeah, no, it is just, it is just bizarre because it's just this endless kind of people just go away and then they come back and no one really talks about it. Or somewhere is closed for a while. And then it is open again and no one talks about it. It's very weird thinking how long this might go on. And everything is just based on the kind of... My, someone we know is getting married and she may not be able to get married if she gets it. Or her husband may not be able to turn up to marry her if he gets it. Or, you know, it's kind of... It's just... If the, the weird rolling impermanence in the world. Yes. Yes, yeah. in that constant anything you do is like, well, of course, I might not be here for this. I might be at home. And then, and yeah, so I, I think that would be a really, trying to create a world where that is just completely normal. <laughs> just be. <laughs> well, we'll see what we can do with that. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been delightful. And I love, I love when, when our guests make us think about, make me think about things in new ways that I hadn't considered before. It's always great. I'm not sure we actually talked about world building, but we really, I just sort of talked about. Yeah, we did. Yeah. He was yeah. in there. Okay. We, in there. we talked about the choices one has to make basically in storytelling in general, and that all feeds back yes. into into making good choices that rather than just making presumptions of how the world is supposed to be. See, and actually the one thing I'd say at the end about Grimdark world building is some people again think it's gotta be all everything's gotta be awful. So, you know, our hero our party of our heroes get to an inn and the inn is horrible and the beds are full of lice and the food is disgusting and the beer is disgusting and everyone is being really you know, the chimney smokes, everything's horrible. It's like why does it have to be like that? Yes, there are some really horrible restaurants. We've all been we've all had that thing where we've had to stop on a long car journey or something and we've stopped somewhere that's absolutely disgusting <laughs> and the restaurants are vile and the food is disgusting but it's the only place but on the other hand even in very bleak situations we've all had like actually you know what this pizza is absolutely delicious or this is a really nice hotel or you know why can't places be nice in a grim dark world there can still be nice places there can still be like god this is a really nice soup i know we're all going to go and die but this is a really <laughs> nice piece of pizza, damn it. Because uh, it does get really boring as well every inn, everywhere. You want, that, you want that inn on the road that like, oh my God, this was actually the best soup I've ever had in my life. This is amazing because there's the, the little uh, yeah. moments of yes. joy. and, and yes. Maybe my last soup, but it <laughs> but was yes. the best. Yes, that little, those little moments of joy, yeah, because it does get a bit, it's a bit repetitive also. I mean, I can't have feeling in any fantasy world, someone else could, if someone, obviously the money spinner in a fantasy world is to go and set up the one decent inn that serves non-watered down beer and food where you actually know what the meat is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much.
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on November 24th where we'll be rejoined by Fonda Lee, author of the Green Bone Trilogy, to talk about diasporas and the evolution of cultures. I'd also like to remind you that we are a finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. If you are eligible to vote for the Hugos, we would love your consideration. And if you want to learn more about how you can be eligible, visit discon3.org. If you want to know more about your hosts and the books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there is a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Mm-hmm.